Hello, and welcome to The Runs, the podcast in which we talk about runs of comic books. I'm your host, Ryan Alexander Tanner. This week's episode, we'll be talking about Chris Claremont and Paul Smith's run on Uncanny X-Men with a very special guest, Austin Gorton. Hey, Austin. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Good. Nice to see you. I'm going to introduce you now, so clam up. Austin Gorton is a writer, a reviewer, a podcaster, among other things. He's the author of the Gentleman of Leisure blog, uh, which hosts the Examining X-Men series, which he's been prolifically writing about X-Men comics for... How long have you been doing that? Uh, it's 2009. So, so 20, thir- 13 years? Yeah. <laughs> 20 years, 13 years. 20 though. years, 13 years, 6 of one, half does the other. Yeah, tw- uh, coming up on 13 years. Yeah, so you're, I wonder, do you feel like you've written the most X-Men reviews on the internet? Um, quite, well, I don't know. Paul O'Brien has written a lot of X-Men reviews. Paul O'Brien always gets you. And he, because he started before I did, and he's still going in one form or another. Um, his are a little bit shorter than mine. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple of, um, there's a couple of other people out there I know who are kind of doing the, the issue by issue thing, but, uh, I think I might be, um, you know, with the exception of Paul O'Brien, I might be the only one that's done like everything. Cause I don't just review like X-Men Uncanny X-Men, but all of the spinoffs and, uh, one shots and limited series and all that kind of stuff. So it's the the full sweep of the X-Men universe. So for those of you listening who are new to Austin, uh, who are at work killing time, I think you just opened a treasure trove of content. (laughs) (laughs) Many, many blog entries to read. Oh, and then you and I, of course, podcasted together for many years. We did a Say by the Bell podcast, and then we did one about special episodes, which is still going. It is still going, yep. Yeah. I had a kid and gave up podcasting, and then now I'm sort of trying it out again. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> so, pleasure pleasure to see you again. Always good to see you, Ryan. So, here is the Wikipedia-esque summary. Uh, and again, you're so you're, to me, one of the Internet's experts on the Uncanny X-Men run. So, I'm really interested in your insight in this in general. Let me know if I leave anything out. Okay. So, pa- Paul Smith on X-Men, that's about eight years into Claremont's run. So at this point, it's about a me- it's a mega hit. This is several years after uh, Burn left. Yep. And so then Dave Cockrum came back for a while for what mm-hmm. a couple of years. Um, yeah. So roughly, he he came aboard right after Burn left. So um, that was well, one forty five was his first Cockrum's return issue, and he was on for about twenty issues. Okay. Um, Smith's first one is is one sixty five. Um, though Cockrum had a few fill-ins here and there um, along the way. And then Paul Smith came in from animation. He worked on Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, uh, and he came to Marvel. He did somewhat some Marvel fanfares, and then he was going to be the regular artist on Doctor Strange, and they got mm-hmm. him over on X-Men. And I guess ahead of time, he agreed to do a year. He's like, I'll do a year of X-Men. So yes. he's he's only on for a year, and that was actually like the agreement ahead of. He probably understood what it would do to a person to draw X Men for any amount of time, right? And uh, that's the story on this run. It's nineteen eighty three. It's like the nineteen eighty three run of X Men. It's about towards the middle of Claremont's run. 
Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of smack dab in the middle, and in a lot of ways that it, that we can talk about, it's um, it's a pivot point for Claremont's run. It's the it's the point where Claremont sort of says his final word on the X Men as classical superheroes, hmm. and starts to move in the direction that he takes the series after that, which is as sort of uh, anti-establishment revolutionary figures. Mm. So the the you know Claremont Byrne, Claremont Cockrum, Claremont Byrne, the second Cockrum run is all you know sort of very pure, high-level superhero comics. I mean, Dark mm-hmm. Phoenix Saga is sort of the pinnacle of sort of superhero uh, melodrama. That sort of mixture of high emotion, intense action, very comic booky, um, metaphoric but not super complicated thematically. Um, just I mean, really, that form done some of the best that's ever been done, but still within that framework of the traditional superhero narrative that came out of Marvel of the '60s. Mm-hmm. Latter-day Claremont is much more experimental, much more um, pushing against that tradition. And a lot of that starts in the Paul Smith run. And a lot of that is because of what Paul Smith brings to the book and the way that it shows Claremont that he can break away from that sort of superhero tradition. And what would you say Paul Smith brings to the book? Um, it's, it's a weird, so it's a weird mix of, of, um, like minimalist, but detailed. Mm-hmm. 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 And a lot of that comes from his background in animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's in, in a lot of ways, there's not a lot to Paul Smith's pencils and particularly his layouts and things like that can be very, um, very straightforward, very um, pointed in the way that they depict the action. But that isn't to say that they're devoid of detail. There's a lot of detail mm-hmm. in in his work. It's just you find it in different places. It's the the texture of the hair. It's the way the light reflects off of a doorknob. But then at the same time, like a face is just a face, and there's not a ton of like hash lines and detail and things in that. So he's very choosy. Yeah, I want to add to that. Well, he's definitely a minimalist, and he's a line guy. That's one of the things mm-hmm. I'm going to get into is, well, yeah, I'll just say it now, but we'll talk more about it. How do you pronounce his anchor's name? Bob Wyacek? I've always heard Wiasek. Wiasek. So he definitely has to learn how to ink Paul Smith over the first three or four issues. And yep. so I would say yep. it takes a minute to, doesn't look right right away. Mm-hmm. But I would say, so I've been reading all these runs of stuff and going back reading, you know, as, as you do when you do a podcast like this. And one of the like, kind of ongoing questions of this podcast is like, did you have to be there at the time? You know, do you love this because you were 12? Right. And right. And from my from my view, because I had read a few of these and we'll talk a bit about like when I read them or my context. I hadn't just read this run through before, but um, I'm familiar with this era of X-Men. It wasn't like totally something I'd never seen before. But in terms of all the things I've read so far, this is 
the thing that I have most been like, no, you did not have to be there. This is really phenomenal comics. Like this mm-hmm. is of the runs I haven't read that I finally read to do this podcast. This is probably the most where I'm like, these are phenomenal. And I'm really like glad I am doing this. <laughs> so I, so, and what I would say is that, um, I don't, I'm not super familiar. I mean, I've read a bunch of like Claremont X-Men here and there, and I don't know it thoroughly, that's mm-hmm. one of the things, too, is that as, you know, we're going to do full runs of certain stuff over time, like Claremont's X-Men's one where I was like, I'm not going to try to just do it from beginning to end. We're not, not going to try to do a podcast on a 15-year uh, creative run. <laughs> I think it'd be a cool podcast, but <laughs> right? it's, right? it splinters, too. It gets into, like, do we do X-Factor? It gets right, tricky, right. you know? And this yep. is right around where that starts happening, which I'm yep, sure we'll this, talk about. Yep, this run kind of coincides with the launch of New Mutants. Yep. But, uh, so I can't really compare it much to what was happening before, but what I would say is that it's very much an adventure serial, you know, Mm -hmm. but also what to me appeals most about this is that Claremont's really interested in these characters and like who they are. And the word I would use is nuanced. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would also say about Paul Smith's work. It's minimalist and it's very nuanced where he draws a face and it's not just a face. It's minimal lines, but there's a lot of information in that line work. A lot of subtle expression, a lot of body posture, a lot of composition on the page or the size of a character is indicative of their feeling in that Mm -hmm. moment and building Mm -hmm. suspense with framing. There's There's a page in issue 168 which is the famous Professor Xavier is a jerk yep. issue that opens with Kitty yelling that to the audience. And is really, it's not the beginning of Smith's run. That's his third issue, uh, fourth yeah. issue. Um, but it's really kind of where he's settled in, where I think Weasek yep. has figured him out. Um, yeah. And there's a page in that issue where Kitty is trying to get Professor X to put her back on the X-Men. That's sort yep. of the pre- end of the previous issue. Xavier's like, well, we have the new mutants now. We don't need this 14-year-old girl running around with the X-Men. And she's like, yeah. screw you, old man. I've fought with the X-Men. I've lived with the I almost died with the X-Men. I'm an X-Man. Uh, so yeah. there's a page where she's trying to convince him. And she does all these different, you know, she tries to be nice. She tries to be logical. She tries yeah. to do all these different methods. And each of her, her attempts is depicted in a panel. And in mm-hmm. each one of those panels, you could strip out every line of dialogue and you would still know what Mm -hmm. emotion she's feeling, how Xavier is reacting, all the different like bargaining logic, all that is, is apparent just through Smith's art. You don't even need a single word. Totally. No, I mean, the visual storytelling is like very high bar. And then I guess I would just say the sort of, um, mix of like, uh, you know, high adventure and then like really nuanced, characterization that's like the high point of claremont's x-men i think to me this is the best i've seen of those two elements coming together both visually and with writing and that's really claremont leaned into that i think because of smith Mm -hmm. because he saw that with smith he had an artist where he could do that where he'd wanted to do that but didn't necessarily feel you know dave cockrum god bless him phenomenal artist not a a nuanced character driven artist you know he's He's in many ways sort of the stereotypical old school comic booky kind of guy. Um, you know, Byrne 
burns a lot of things uh, <laughs> to a lot of different people that we don't need to litigate right now. But, uh, you know, he is also very traditional and classical in his stylings. But with Smith, Claremont had this artist that he realized could do that more nuanced character focused stuff. And he really leaned into it. And mm-hmm. this is where you start to see prior to this, you could kind of, you you'd have these story arcs within the creative runs. Mm-hmm. You know, the classic Phoenix saga, the, uh, the world tour where the X-Men are trying to get back home, dark Phoenix saga, days of future past, the three part Dr. Doom arcade story with Cockrum. You've got all these sort of, um, multi-part stories with little ones and two offs here and there after the end of the second brood saga which is the final two issues are smith's first two issues on the book that's the last sort of formally structured multi-part story of claremont's run more or less until mutant massacre in 87 yeah, I've noticed. I was noticing that they all. It always kind of bleeds into the next thing. Exactly. Like, you, when a storyline ends, it ends like in the middle of an issue, and then you get something else for, and it just goes right into the, it's. But even actually, if we just want to start getting into the first issue, um, because I hadn't read you know the issue before this. I mean, it's an artist coming on, so it's not you know anyone's fault. But you literally just like start, everyone's like in a hangar in, in a spaceship, like <laughs> trying not to get sucked into space as the first. And but I would say anytime you read a Claremont issue, any Claremont issue, there's always something. You're always in the middle of something. At the yeah. there's yeah. really not a true jumping on point other than uh, what is it, Giant Size X Men number one. After that. You're pretty much always coming in on, in the middle of something. Right, right. So this is the second brood story? It is. So you, the first brood story was with Cockrum. Um, that was like one kind of starts in 154, but it really kicks off with issue 155 through 159. And that's where it's the X-Men are fighting Deathbird who's allied with the brood. This is where you find out that Deathbird is the sister of Lalandra, the Empress of the Shi'ar and Professor Xavier's bird lady girlfriend. Um, Deathbird is a character that Claremont introduced when he was writing the original Ms. Marvel, Mm. um, brought her over to X-Men. Then that story ends. It's very, again, very traditionally, you know, three-part story. Tigra from the Avengers guest stars in it just sort of randomly. Um, and then it ends, and it seems like the X-Men are victorious. We get a few uh, uh, sort of fill-in issues. There's the one where uh, Rogue, the X-Men fight Rogue for the first time. Mm. There's a Dracula crossover. There's uh, the one where Ileana goes to Limbo and becomes mm. a teenage girl. Um, and then you get that big, that great flashback to Xavier and Magneto fighting Hydra in the 60s. Mm. Um, which really is an integral component in uh, uh, what I consider Claremont's crowning achievement, which is the transformation of Magneto over the course of his run. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after that, at, at one point in that in that transition, Xavier slips into a coma, and no one really knows why. And then it turns out it's because he's got a brood egg inside okay. of him. And the X-Men have all been off-panel between issues kidnapped and taken to the brood homeworld and that's where 
issue 162 starts and that's the beginning of the second brood arc where the x-men okay. are are on the brood's homeworld and issue 162 is a wolverine one-hander it's really the first time that we get sort of the the dirty hairy uh first person narration from wolverine where a lot of oh. his personality starts to shine through it is published almost simultaneously with the Claremont Miller Wolverine limited series. That happens during this run. Uh, chronologically, it happens during this run. It was published ah. uh, a few months before Smith came on board. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so let's try to let's try to stick to this run. Yeah, so that's that's the setup to then the last two chapters of that story is when Smith comes aboard, sort of mid 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 storyline and that's 165 which is the penultimate issue of that storyline so as he comes in x-men are all in space they've all been infected by the brood uh and they're just trying to work it out and then back on earth what is it uh iliana and moira moira mctaggart and stevie hunter who i don't know she's kitty's (laughs) dance teacher she's there she she is kitty's dance teacher all right uh she will become the new mutants uh uh, gym teacher basically oh, okay but yeah and then one of my yeah i'd say one of my main notes about this first issue is yeah bob bob i'm just calling bob 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 w uh, yeah he's definitely doing like traditional kind of marvel inks and it doesn't look right it's like i was like these uh, look as cool as i remember and it just takes some but he gets it he does mm-hmm. and, to his mm-hmm. credit but yeah it takes some which is pretty standard Anyway, and then Storm is getting in, infested by the brood, and so then she's about to turn into one, so then she blows up her ship. She's yep. floating out in space, and then we cut back to the team. That's the other thing I want to say about these, is one thing that comes up over and over in these issues is there's always like a big adventure happening, and then there's like smaller groupings Mm -hmm. and you always get these really nice organic character exchanges like you get cyclops talking to wolverine and you can see that they have tension but they like they've earned each other's respect but Mm -hmm. they're and then you get wolverine talking to wolverine and nightcrawler's relationships one of the great dynamics and and there's a great there's a great exchange between them in in 165 where they're talking about faith and yep how wolverine can can only he can't believe in anything that he can't um sense mm-hmm. which makes which is one of those like oh yeah wolverine's the badass that uh you know doesn't believe in that religious mumbo jumbo it's like no it's grounded in his in his power his he's animalistic he's all about the heightened senses so of course he's gonna that's gonna be what he relies on is is those senses yeah yeah and then, oh, and they're calling them Sleezoids a bunch, which I thought was weird. Yeah, that's, that's weird. that was the nickname they trotted out for the brood at this sort point. Yeah. Went away over time. And yeah. the brood are very much, um, they're basically the alien from Alien, right? I right. Mean, they're very much like an homage to yes. that. Yes, yes. They, uh, they impregnate you with an egg that then hatches and transforms you into a brood and kills you in the process. So then Kitty's having nightmares and then Colossus is putting the moves. So how old is Colossus is one of my big <laughs> questions. Because Ki- too old. Too Kitty's, old, Ryan. <laughs> Kitty's 13 and turns 14. Yes. Like, at some point. And then she and Colossus have this romantic tension, which keeps coming up. But, I mean, how old is he? Like, ballpark. 18, 19, if we're being really generous. Okay. It's yeah. 
it's not great. The, the the Kitty Colossus thing is, and this isn't the beginning of it. I mean, that's um, um, shockingly, you, you'll be shocked to learn that John Byrne brought in a uh, May-December romance into a comic he was involved in. Uh, but that came up during the Claremont Byrne run after Kitty was introduced, the first kind of inklings of it. But uh, it's not great. Because, I mean, he is, he is older. I mean, he's not that much. He's like 40. But, I mean, he's 18, 19, maybe 20, and she's 13, turning 14, and, yeah, she's a genius, and blah, 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 blah. It's just, just don't do it, guys. Just don't. Well, she's really young. I mean, yeah. if, he's, if he's 17, I'm like, it's still weird, but it's He's an adult. Crime. I mean, okay. it's, it's established. He, he may be the youngest of the new X-Men, you know, the, the all-new, all-different X-Men, who are part of their whole shtick aside from being quasi international is that they are older. You know, the original X-Men were teenagers. These guys are older. You know, obviously okay. Wolverine is however old he is. Um, Nightcrawler turns 21 in X-Men annual number four. Um, so they're not like, again, they're not 50, but they're not teenagers. And Colossus has been established as an adult. He is, okay. you know, a responsible adult at this point. Kitty is not. She's a, 14 year old girl it's weird too that wolverine's like 80 and he's like hanging out with a bunch of 20 year olds all the time right right so then storm keeps appearing to everyone in these different forms and she's sort of like an astral which form of herself which is and then we we see the ships like the living whale ships the akanti uh so is that new? That's introduced in these issues, right? It is, yeah, yeah. We we saw them in those ships in that first brood story. Oh, okay. Um, but this is where you find out what they're called and what their whole deal is and how the brood have enslaved them and all this kind of stuff. So then we got one sixty six is a double size issue. This was to me the the only one I had a little bit of trouble getting through. It is um, a little too long. It definitely didn't need to be double-sized, I don't think. It's long and it's convoluted. So first we get, um, what term, Carol Danvers. She's called Binary Binary. at this time. And uh, Carol Danvers has, again, one of the real convoluted um, existences as a Marvel character. (laughs) Yeah, you could do a whole podcast on Carol Danvers. Oh, you could do more than one. Yeah, yeah like, that's true. That's true. Oh, and there's some good stuff, though, where Carol Danvers is flying around blowing stuff up. And I don't know if he's done this before, Claremont, but he really, uh, like in these action scenes Paul Smith does, a lot of times they're just wordless. He's just like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just look at it. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. And so Carol Danvers is coming in. She's got an issues with the brood. And then Storm is merged with this baby space whale. Mm-hmm. And then is that storm that's sort of growing in the sack in the space whale's mouth? Yes. Okay. So the idea was at one point storm learned the X-Men learned that they're infected with the brood. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of why they're doing all the musing that they're doing in 165, Mm -hmm. because it's this big debate of, um, do we kill the brood? And the X-Men have always had this, you know, we don't kill our enemies. Mm-hmm. And the second brood story is really about Claremont pushing that notion and testing that notion and forcing the characters to really grapple with what that means. And so this becomes a case of, you know, do we kill ourselves to kill the brood? Do we mm. sacrifice ourselves to prevent the brood from taking us over? And that's ultimately where Storm, what Storm lands on. because And Storm is the most fervent i will not take a life of the x-men 
Um, That's a big part of her character in right. this run. But yeah. she ultimately lands on, in this brood story, the idea of, I won't take a life, but I will take a life to spare another life and sacrifice my own in payment for that. Mm-hmm. And so she basically like lets herself go off into space and kill herself, but the Akanti save her, and so she's in that cocoon. They're healing her, okay. and in the meantime, they're sort of using her her mind more or less to communicate with the X-Men to enlist their help in defeating the brood and saving, you know, releasing them from their enslavement more or less. Dromero and Wolverine was short. Yeah. This is, he's really short in these and you're like, Oh yeah, that used to be a big part of his character. That was a thing. It's always fun to see an artist. Remember that. (laughs) Yeah. They really let that, I guess the movies is kind of what made that. Yeah. Yeah. Go. But yeah, and then there's just a lot of like, how are we going to handle this? And should Wolverine kill all the X-Men before they turn into brood? That's a big yep. topic. Because Wolverine's like, I'll kill anyone. <laughs> big part of his character. But yeah, and then it's just a lot of like space conflict. And then Cyclops is, there's a spy and it turns out to be Cyclops. He's been infected enough with the brood. Yeah, it's moved far enough along that it's taking control of him. He's got creepy brood eyes. I love that. The way Smith draws that, where the beams come out of each eye because they're the big brood eyes now. It's funny because I saw that because he's blasting both Colossus and Wolverine and they're like in separate. And I was like, oh, I guess if you're Cyclops, you'd learn to like cross your eyes and go wall-eyed because it's like strategic. (laughs) But then they actually say right away, they go, his metamorphosis has given him voluntary control over his optic blast and a much wider arc of fire. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Claremont. <laughs> yeah, but you can see like he would practice that in the danger room, like cross your eyes, make a narrow beam. Or, right, right. <laughs> it seems like a good thing to learn. Um, oh, and then we get the first Lockheed. Yeah, Lockheed debuts here, and they do a visual gag here where he's you just see him from like the neck up, and he's shooting brood, and then you see he's actually really tiny, and then they do it again later when they bring him back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They do the same bit twice, but, uh, yeah, we basically just have a lot of space conflict between the X-Men and the Brood, and then it gets really confusing a little bit, where they go into, like, a crystalline area, and then the Brood Queen comes with them and then betrays them immediately afterwards, and it was all, I don't know, it was fine. Yeah, so this is this is where they I mean that's the soul of the Akanti that they're trying to free and and it it um I think I called it in my review a thematic Deus ex machina mm. where it's it's not that it, it's less about um saving them in a plot term but it gives them a way out of their sort of thematic, do we kill, do we not kill, where the X-Men reached a point where they were willing to sacrifice themselves to kill the brood. You know, sort of, uh, if they're going to take us out, we're going to take them out with us. Vengeance-driven sort of sacrifice. And what the Akanti do, sort of sweeping in at the last minute, is give them a way to make their sacrifice mean something and save something in the act of doing it. And so then that's what ultimately allows them to survive because they decide, well, before we take out 
ourselves to take out the brood, we're going to free the Akanti and really hurt the brood, and then we'll kill ourselves. But in freeing the Akanti, they then get turned around, and the Akanti can purge the brood of them and allow them to live. Uh, sounds great. And then, <laughs> do you have anything else to say about Carol Danvers at this point? So she was Captain Marvel before this, right? She was Ms. Marvel. Okay. So that was the female uh, variant of Captain Marvel. She was a sporting character of Captain Marvel back in the late 60s when he debuted. Okay. Um, she got transformed into Ms. Marvel for the 1970s Ms. Marvel series. Um, and then that was a short-lived series, ran 23 issues. Um, Claremont wrote most of it, developed an affinity for the character, she ended up going over to the Avengers, where she got thoroughly destroyed by David Michelini and Jim Shooter. Mm. Um, the whole raped by a mortis gave birth to him, oh. then decided to go live with him because she loved him. And the Avengers were like, bye, have a good Whoa, life. Oh, I don't know about that run. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was Avengers 200. It's terrible. And then, uh, and then, so then Claremont more or less say, brought her back in... Avengers Annual Number Ten, the first appearance of Rogue, right? Stripped her of her powers, but then kind of brought her under his wing. She was a supporting character in X Men for a while, and then he used this Brood storyline to give her powers again, okay. made her into binary, and sort of gave her a second life as this cosmic character that she was in for quite a while before okay. eventually coming back, becoming Captain Marvel and a movie star, and now she's like Marvel's Wonder Woman. She's almost like Marvel's Superman, really. Um, and then, uh, minus the, uh, history of Superman. Yeah. <laughs> Superman has very, fairly straightforward history. <laughs> but, uh, and so she's basically an X-Men supporting character at this time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically... And in the course, in the course of this run, she basically joins the Star Jammers. And that's right. where she hangs out for a while. Right. And she's basically like a character that Claremont liked. Yeah. And, okay. All right. So, yeah. And then they're all sorted out. Um, Scott's talking about going to go live with his dad in the, in space, go and live with the Star Jammers. How long have the Star Jammers been around at this point? Uh, they were introduced in Cockrum's last issue the first time around, so 107. So during, a while. During the original Phoenix arc. Um, but they, so they were there for the original Phoenix arc, and then they came back in the first Brood story. They're very much Cockrum characters. He, okay. He, he had a soft spot for him. So then they're like, oh, everything's fine now. But uh, Wolverine's like, I know who's infected with the brood. It's Professor X. And yes, so back then they Earth. go back to Earth to deal with that. And then this cover of 167 with Cyclops carrying Professor X in the foreground. This is a good example, actually, of the, the magic of Paul Smith is like all the different uh, physicalities of the characters. Mm hmm. And even just, like, the puffy sleeves on Kitty Pride, And it's just very perfect. It's, again, yeah, it's sort of minimalist. It doesn't have any line that doesn't need to be there. But it's, like, perfect. It's, like, everything's exactly where it should be. And everyone is distinctive, you know? Yeah. And uh, there's a nice sense of drama, nice composition. Everything's very well-framed. So, yeah, Paul Smith, man. So then we get... So this is not the first appearance of the New Mutants. Uh, correct. At this point, so their first appearance was Marvel Graphic Novel number four. Right. Which came out a few months before this. They kind of, their debut was kind of simultaneous with the end of this brood story, but this is the point where the beginning of their series catches up to X Men. 
And so, it's the first meeting between the X-Men and the New Mutants. Yeah, and we so we've gotten a few issues of the New Mutants at this Correct. point. Correct, yep. And uh, there's some character Like, one character, I was like, who's that? And I guess she's going to die pretty soon. So, Karma. Uh, Karma, right. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so, yeah, they're all hanging out in the mansion, and then the X-Men show up. And it's, your, you know, for it's, it's like a pact between... Um, superheroes that if anyone just shows up you have to fight for like six pages before going like hey who are you (laughs) well what's interesting is the um the new mutants know that the x-men are the x-men because they you know are living in their house and have heard stories about the x-men who professor xavier thought died right um so that's why he formed partially why he formed the new mutants um, but the the X Men don't know who the hell the New Mutants are, and they're like, "Oh no, the evil Brood Queen has assembled these mutant teens as her hosts, and we must defeat them." And I also love Charles Xavier, man. I just can't get enough of that guy. He's like, oh, "Okay, my team of warriors I've been training were all killed, so I'll get a bunch of kids and let's well, just start all over." The whole like the beginning of New Mutants, they made a big deal, and I I have a category that I call their students, not superheroes. Uh-huh. In my review of the New Mutants, because that was the whole big thing was he after he thought the X-Men died, he's like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not training young mutants anymore. I can't handle, you know, bringing these people into my world and watching them die. And Moira McTaggart and uh, and Reed Richards sort of pushed him to, you know, there's still these young mutants and they need your help. And if you don't help them, they're going to go to the Hellfire Club or they're going to go to Magneto. And so he was like, fine, fine, fine. I'll take in these young mutants and I'll help them, but I'm not training them to be superheroes. And so then it's like, okay, how long is that going to last? And yeah. it does not last very long. <laughs> no, yeah. Wait, so Reed, Reed Richards is involved with the formation of New, New Mutants? He introduces Xavier to Karma. She okay. she debuts in a Marvel team-up issue written by Claremont and drawn by Frank Miller. Oh. Uh, in which she battles the uh, the Fantastic Four, and so then he contacts Xavier and is like, "Hey, I've got this young mutant that could use your help." And Xavier's like, "Oh, I don't do that anymore." He's like, "Come on, we need she needs you." Nice, nice young mutant here, hot off the presses. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So then, you know, I gotta say too, like this is so standard. This stuff now, it's so overdone, but it's actually really nice in this era. I mean, I just really miss this era of there being like. 14 monthly Marvel books, you know? <laughs> right, So right. it's like, okay, there's a new series. You're showing us these new Mutants characters who are in a new title, in this title, and they're relevant to each other, and you're sort of like... It's a little bit of a, a backdoor pilot or whatever, but um, you're like, that's manageable. I can mm-hmm. buy a, a second X-Men book. That's a, right. Was New Mutants the second ongoing X-Men series? Yep, it was the first spinoff. And then after that is X-Factor, and that's a few yes. years away, right? Yep, yep. Okay. So it's all very manageable then. Like, it feels like... Uh, and, in, it, and importantly, Claremont is writing New Mutants. He's creating New Mutants. He's on board with this idea of, I'm going to have a second book, and, and is thus able to make it a little bit distinct from the X-Men. It's not just another X-Men book. Yeah. Um, X-Factor... Claremont was not on board with and mm-hmm. did not write. And so that's really the point at which Claremont starts to lose control of his own narrative. Okay. And I would say too, at this point, you know, looking at this, there's like just a feeling of like, you know, if you read this and you like these characters and you start reading new mutants because of this, like you'll actually get something out of it. 
which is sort of like the opposite of what mm-hmm. Marvel comics are like now, which are like, you won't really get the full story unless you read all this crap that's not any mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the, uh, I don't know. I just, I miss, I miss the um, manageable era of comics, which right. is right. long gone. This is definitely my, my middle-aged man. <laughs> Yelling at clouds. <laughs> yeah, but so they really do a good job, though, of, like, there's a throwdown between the X-Men and the New Mutants, and you get a good sense of what all the New Mutants' abilities are. Kitty goes after Xavier. There's a uh, there's a two-panel sequence here that I always like to hold up as, you know, people give Claremont a hard time for being very wordy yeah. and, you know, purple prose and all that kind of stuff. And there's a two-panel sequence where they're discussing um, whether or not they're going to kill Xavier to kill the brood queen. Mm. And in the course of two panels and I counted it's 27 words, Claremont effortless, effortlessly and distinctively establishes the character of five different people mm. in two panels. That's Cyclops, cool. Wolverine, Storm, Cannonball, and Danny Moonstar. And in the course of those two panels and 27 words, it tells you everything you need to know to get a sense of who each of those five characters is. And so it's a really great example of, you know, Claremont can be precise and pointed in his usage of words when he wants to be. He's not just a long-winded, rambling old man. Is this the one where Cyclops says, so long as there's hope, no matter how slight the X-Men fight to preserve life? That one? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then he says, any objections? Wolverine says, lots. Storm says, says, none. none. Uh, Cannonball says, so that's Cyclops. And Danny Moonstar says, wow. Yep. So it's good. Yeah. No, really good characterization. And again, the way that's drawn, too, and the framing where Mm -hmm. the X-Men are more in the front, they're larger in the panel, and then the New Mutants are in the back, and they're not in costume, so they have a sense of... Yeah, it tells you everything you need to know about the dynamic between the two teams, and yeah. Totally. So yeah, then uh, you know, so Charles turns into a, br- a full-on pills, turns into a brood, and they fight him. They they kick his ass, which is kind of satisfying. <laughs> and then uh, they're just trying to figure out what to do, right? And then you know, as you do, they say, "Why don't we just clone clone him a body, put his brain and his all in the new body." It is the death of Professor Xavier's original body, and he will never again be in his original body. How many bodies has he had? He's had a few now, right? Well, yeah, because this is, you know, uh, um, as as revolutionary and groundbreaking as the cr- current Krakoa era is in that regards, here's the X-Men for the first time just kill that one body and transfer the consciousness into a new body and you're good to go. It was a new idea. Claremont did it first. <laughs> so, yeah. So then oh, we got a nice little uh, FF cameo, which is cool. Uh, yes. The latest in the ongoing Claremont burn pissing match between uh, X-Men and Fantastic Four. Tell me more. Because I did. I did the uh, <laughs> one of these episodes. I did the start of Burns run. And there's a really great moment where the Inhumans move to the blue area of the moon and they like crush the site where Jean Grey died. <laughs> They're like, and the caption just says, fuck you, Chris. <laughs> um, so what is, lay it down for me. What's the, okay. Uh, so in John Burns, fantastic Four, 242 through 244, Galactus comes to earth 
and he's dying and Reed Richards saves his life. Right. Basically sort of the, the, you know, we don't, we fight to preserve life kind of thing. And, Mm -hmm. um, so this is a creature in need and I'm going to help it. If I can help him, I will. So he saves Galactus's life. Uh, Claremont didn't necessarily love that idea. And so in this issue, he basically has Lalandra as a, you know, leader of a, intergalactic empire phone hollow phone reed richards and be like you dipshit galactus kills planets and you saved his life you're an idiot uh don't do it again we'll be watching you yeah (laughs) and so then burn who's like how dare you claremont throw shade at my brilliance uh comes up with the trial of reed richards story in fantastic four 261 262 which is basically his response to that to this scene in 267 saying no this is why it was wonderful that reed richard saved galactus because he is a force of nature in the universe and is important to entropy and the birth of new life and and blah 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 so it's all once they split up it's like you can read their two series and see them like taking pot shots at each other back and forth they so they really weren't getting along at that time at that mm. point. Mm-mm. So it really is like them. Just that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> and this is the same. It's the same thing that uh, you know. There is the Doctor Doom arcade story that Claremont did, and uh, uh, Byrne didn't like the way Doom was handled there. He was miffed that uh, uh, Claremont didn't get permission to use Doctor Doom from the mm. Fantastic Four editorial office. So then that's where the infamous. That wasn't Doctor Doom. It was a Doombot. Retcon <laughs> came in, which becomes a really popular trope. Yes. So then I love this. So then Charles like, cool. I got a new body. I can walk. And he's like, oh no, I have like a psychosomatic pain from walking because I'm so used to it. And he's like, okay, cool. Well, I'm back. I'm alive again. I'm gonna learn to walk over time. And oh, these are the new mutants. And oh yeah, by the way, Kitty, you're demoted. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just like throws it out right at the end. It's so good. <laughs> well, and again, it's a great example of of um, it's a cliffhanger, right? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. a it's it's a it's something that's designed to get you to be like, oh god, I can't wait to pick up the next issue. But it's not, oh my god, is Kitty going to survive? Cliffhanger. It's a how is Kitty this person that we've come to know and love going to react to this news? It's a character based. Yep cliffhanger and that's really what claremont starts to use to drive the story so it's that same traditional model of you know keep him hooked give him the next hit get him to come back for more but he just changes the way that he does it and it becomes you you're tuning in to find out what happens next to the characters you're not tuning in to find out you know what's going to happen in the next beat of the plot totally no i strongly agree with that it's also an interesting one i mean i haven't been you know, reading this series monthly for five years at this point or whatever. But, you know, from my point of view, like, I, I, I think Kitty's great. She's a great character. She seems like a real asset. But, yeah, she should go join the New Mutants. Like, that's the... Right, right. It's <laughs> really where she belongs. It's, it's, she, maybe she won't be making out with grown-up Colossus anymore. <laughs> you can go make out with someone her own age, you know? It's like, yep, yep. But Once, it's 167 was the... Uh, the first issue of this run that I read back in back when I was a kid. So, but it had been out for a long time. I read it as a cla- uh, X-Men classic reprint. 
You know, I was going to bring that up. Uh, it comes up the issue that, because uh, I definitely read these from X-Men Classics. This, well, when we were kids and we were reading this, there weren't even really trades no, so much. That no. was less of a thing. And I was able, I, I had a gap, so I was able to read um, all the Claremont Burn stuff through X-Men Classics, but then had a hard time finding the middle stuff. And 167, whatever issue of X-Men Classics reprinted that, was the issue of X-Men Classic that was on sale when I first started reading comics, really. And so I was able to pick it up from there and then go forward, and I was able to fill in the back issues, not of the original issues, but of the classic X-Men issues to read all these old stories. Yeah, so, you know, I usually ask people, I guess I just think of you as like a living encyclopedia specifically (laughs) about the X-Men, so I didn't ask, but like what was your first, like what is the first new issue of X-Men you remember buying? X-Men Volume 2, Number 8, and Uncanny X-Men oh. 289. So that's they, quite a bit later. That's like the early yeah, 90s. That's the early 90s. That's um, Bishop is introduced to the X-Men Blue team, and they have a, a picnic at the beach by the lake, and Cyclops is distracted by a swimsuited Psylocke, and... Oh, yeah. Bishop or Gambit throws a boysenberry pie that Rogue baked at at Bishop, and then Gambit's wife shows up and is like, "I gotta take you back to the New or- to New Orleans to fight the Brood." I wanted to say too, yeah. I mean, you can't talk about Claremont X Men without mentioning all the annoying accents. I'm not invulnerable <laughs> when I'm blasting. It's really like, whoo. But uh, okay, well, it's, so you started, and you're how old? Uh, that, so that was 92. I was 12. And uh, what do you think made you like a lifer, an X-Men lifer? Um, so I <laughs> actually answered this question on a podcast not that long ago. Um, well, sorry. It was. You know, since I have this all locked up, loaded and ready to go. So I think yeah. it was the, the combination, the character focus. I mean, X-Men number eight, there's no bad guys. Um, uh-huh. Gam- Gambit and Bishop get in a fight, but they're both X-Men, and, and yeah. Gambit's ex-wife shows up and blasts them at one point, but you know, that's his ex-wife. Like, this is just, you know, this is family... Was it Was it the boysenberry pie, once you saw that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, like, um, it. it was the, uh, uh, you know, this is just a family fighting, but with superpowers. And that was what really appealed to me was, yeah, I knew superheroes. This is These were the first comics that I started to read kind of regularly but I collected the trading cards I watched you know Spider-Man and his amazing friends when I was a kid I knew the the DC characters from the the superpowers the action figures and you know I loved Batman 89 and all it's I knew superheroes but this was really my first encounter with this notion of like yeah they're superheroes but they're just like real people who are also superheroes and and the fact that you could have a story an issue that was just about these characters hanging out and not fighting bad guys, I was like, oh, shit, there's something here. And that's really sort of that melding of sci-fi action and soap opera melodrama is what hooked me and has kept me hooked ever since. Yeah, you've never had a period where you weren't keeping up with X-Men? Correct. Wow, right on. So, yeah, this one opens issue 168 with... I would, this is the most iconic image of Paul Smith's run, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. maybe like top five iconic opening splash pages of X-Men. Yeah, probably. Which is Kitty pointing at the reader and saying, Professor Xavier is a jerk. Why do you think that image hit so hard? That's a good question. 
I mean, it's it's the 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 staging of it. It's it, you open this comic and she's pointing at you, the reader, and you didn't get that a lot. That sort of fourth wall breaking, um, especially by you know eighty three. That wasn't something happening. We didn't have Deadpool yet, um, huh. so that was novel and attention getting. And it's 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 Smith. I mean, it's the art. I mean, that yeah. image of of Kitty in that splash page is just wonderfully drawn and this is and it's a great example of that sort of detailed minimalism that he does Mm -hmm. where he chooses to put the detail and and where he doesn't yeah nice lighting on her hair Mm -hmm. really solid expression posture her jacket he's really good with the clothes too yeah like a good that's always been a thing to me about drawing comics is you have to be a costumer Mm-hmm. It's like such a hassle. I don't really like to think about clothes that much, and then you have to. So. Well, there's so many artists that just draw a naked figure and then color in parts of it to make it the costume. But like the way that it bunches around her elbow because mm-hmm. it's like an '80s puffy jacket. Yep. Um, you know, that's just these, these little details like that that just make it pop and feel so real. Yeah, and like their snow outfits. Who is that with her? Is that Ilyana? Yeah, Ilyana's with her, and mm-hmm. they're both wearing like jeans and like heavy coats. Uh, and here's two. Maybe it's before this, but I think really this is where the the anchor's really getting it. That really nice thin line. He's mm-hmm. really like committing to this thin, precise kind of more of a contour line. Yeah, which is what yeah. you need with that Paul Smith. So yeah, this is where it's like really firing on all cylinders. We have a weird sequence where someone is spying from the shadows and like you know it's Lockheed because they already did that reveal so that was a weird right. choice to me but I guess you don't know that he followed from the space mm-hmm. whale so then Wolverine's getting ready to go be in his miniseries yes and so this I mean this that's a a novelty at the time this notion mm-hmm. why well, I shouldn't even say that it wasn't necessarily now it's a novelty now looking back this idea of Claremont wrote a four-issue miniseries starring Wolverine with Frank Miller. It's really good. Um, And then he wrote a spot into his X-Men book to say this is when Wolverine went and did the adventures of that miniseries. And Mm -hmm. for four issues, Wolverine's not in the X-Men because he's off being in this limited series for four issues. And he d- Claremont does it again in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine limited series. Mm. And they're gone for six issues, arguably the, oh, probably wow. the two most popular characters in X-Men at that time. Claremont's just like, no, they got this limited series. They're not in X-Men right now. That's really cool. It's really like admirable. And yeah. also, you know, if they tried to explain all of Wolverine's excursions now, it would be like all that happened. Yeah. Exactly. And- they just give up. And so you just don't get that anymore. Um, but that was, you know, Claremont says, no, this has all got to fit together. This is all yeah. got to, it's, it's one tale and it's got to, we got to mark the spots where these other stories, if we're going to do these other stories as X-Men gets more and more popular and you deal with spinoffs and things, I'm going to make sure that I write in these breakpoints for these characters. So then it's cool too, because he's suiting up and he like puts on the outfit he's wearing in Wolverine number yeah. one. Like, yeah. It's said, a great little attention cool to detail. detail. Yeah. So then we get Professor X and PT. He's hanging out with Lalandra. <laughs> and uh, it really is. And it goes on and on for yeah. a long time. I love his 80s. He's got the sweatband and the tank top yeah. and the short shorts. And You're yeah. like, Charles, man, just do a montage. Right? Just you know? blow through just, it in a montage. And then, so Katie's taking dance lessons from, who is this again? What's her name? Stevie Hunter. Yeah, so did she die later? Or how come we haven't seen her? 
Um, I don't think Stevie dies. She just kind of she disappears after Claremont leaves. I mean, she's one of those um, Claremont normal people that he works into his narratives. Yeah, I want to talk. There's some more, and we'll get into that as we go. There's some, yeah, a lot of like human incidental characters who are just kind of interested. There's a little bit of that in Burns FF, where he's like starting to try to do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's, well, we'll get to it. But yeah, there's some really cool use of that. And then the other thing, the thing I think I liked most about this run, and what I sort of thought was the core of it, was that Storm is like going through some personal changes and it's not like it's not like she's possessed mm-hmm. or you know the shadow king's tampering with her she's just in a phase of like personal evolution yeah and she's trying to figure out what it's about and it's such a a, a narrative thread through it's really like the like the heart of these issues she's she's the character that has an arc in this yeah. in this run that she ends it in a different spot than she began it. But it's cool that it's not like, uh, it's not, it's, it's like real life. It's like, mm-hmm. she's got, I mean, she was like, her body was destroyed by the brood. It's in a reaction to these fantastic sci-fi high adventure events, you know, the, the brood and the, the body being destroyed. So it's, it's reacting to that stuff, but it's a human reaction to, these happenings it's not those happenings aren't triggering the change her response to those happenings are what's triggering these changes as she's dealing with them and yeah and just being like an adult in a complex life you know like it's just really and there's something about that too that the way he writes these characters like you can define them like you can write a bio on the back of a trading card for them, but there's mm-hmm. really like a lot of undercurrent. Like there's qualities to Cyclops and there's qualities to Storm that are not easily defined. Like right. that there's really they'll surprise you in a really organic way because they're complex characters. And that yeah. to me what's like why I was really really grooving on these. So yeah, then you get your your four page panel. Oh, the other thing that's cool about the four four panel page of kitty trying to trying different approaches to professor x is it um off centers the panels it's four panels Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's not widescreen it's like one's right justified and then left justified it's using this kind of back and forth is really well done just really nicely composed it's a great page it's it's just wonderful bit of sort of sequential art so then uh Cyclops goes on a journey too, and he's hanging out with Lee. Who is this? <laughs> Lee Forrester. Uh, so he met Lee Forrester right after the Dark. Fe- he, she's his rebound gal, basically. Okay. After uh, after Dark Phoenix and Jean Grey's death, um, he meets her right after Dark Phoenix saga. Um, he she's a, a commercial fisherman that owns a boat. Uh, he fights the demon despair. Uh, alongside her and they end up uh, getting washed up on Magneto's Bermuda Triangle Cthulhu Island and she's around for the events of issue 150 which is the beginning of Magneto's turn and then she disappears she literally this is her first appearance in the X-Men since issue 150 Mm. Um, so she's one of those characters Claremont kind of lost the thread of a little bit and this is basically, this is her send off. Um, She's about to get kicked to the curb pretty hard. 
she breaks up with she, this is like the end of her and Cyclops relationship. Claremont actually brings her back uh, in New Mutants uh, about a year down the road hmm. um, and starts a little pseudo relationship with Magneto. Oh. Um, but yeah, she's she's one of those those uh, human supporting characters that uh, that Claremont would do every once in a while. So then we meet uh, uh, Nightcrawler's human <laughs> love interest too, who's again. Just give me the the short version. Amanda Sefton. Amanda Sefton uh, is his girlfriend slash foster sister, adopted sister. What? Yes. <laughs> I did say no more. Claremont's got like, some kinks, man. He's got some he kinks, does. and he works them out in X Men. And I'm not kink shaming at all, but the Amanda Sefton stuff isn't great either. I've actually heard that that's true. Like the Hellfire Club is very oh, much about yeah. his personal kinks. Yeah, there there is a lot of scholarship and writing out there on that. If uh, if if you, the listener, is interested in learning more, <laughs> if you want to learn more about Chris Claremont's private sexual kinks, Nightcrawler was taken in by a family of what were then called gypsies. Uh, okay, I believe Romany is the preferred term. Right. Um, he was taken in by a family of uh, of Romany and uh, raised alongside Amanda Sefton and then fell in love with her as one does, I guess, when you're... Weird. It's a very, it's a very like, Baroque, Gothic um, callback kind of thing that Claremont's doing, and it, it doesn't get the kind of attention it needs to really work. And then what happens to her? Uh, a bunch of comic booky stuff. I mean, she hangs around for a while, um... Nightcrawler leaves the X-Men and so she gets kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit. She turns back up in Excalibur after after uh, Claremont leaves. Uh, she becomes the ruler of Limbo, uh, Ileana's Limbo for a little while. <laughs> of course she does. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. But I I do like the uh, that's not a Claremont thing I like is there's sort of like doomed relationships and stuff. Too. There's a lot of failed relationships. One well, and one it, of his one of his ticks that a lot of people take him to task for not without cause is um, no one is ever allowed to be normal. Hmm. And and some of that is just because you're writing an adventure story in a long form serial and normal is boring, mm-hmm. but you know, it's not that Nightcrawler has a girlfriend. Nightcrawler has a girlfriend who's also his sister. Who's also a demon sorceress. Right. Yeah. You totally. know, it, it can never just be one thing. It's always got to be, this extra li- layers she's, of complication. She's not like a real estate agent. She's yeah. a she's a flight attendant. That's her day Ooh, job. Oh, well, that's exciting. but that's not good enough. She's also a demon sorceress. <laughs> One thing I noticed they do too, and I don't know if they do this before Paul Smith, but they also really set dress Kitty's room. Like she's got a Rubik's cube and a ET calendar, and mm-hmm. so tell me what this is if you know. There's a sign on the wall in Kitty's room that says "The Legion Eats Quiche." I. Do not know what that's a reference to. All right. Well, let's just move on. But yeah, so there's some really <laughs> nice stuff. So anyway, Kitty then goes down and she fights some like stowaway aliens in the basement of uh, the X-Mansion. X-Mansion. Who, didn't those aliens just show up in the Hickman run the same way? Yes. Yes. Yeah, the Sidri- like the- Sidrian Hunters. They're left over from X-Men 154 the first time the mansion was destroyed. All right. So anyway, and then Charles is like, "All right, so you know, you're you back can, on the team. 
you're on probate. You you stopped those stowaway aliens in the basement. So I never noticed before that you're quite an asset to the team. Yeah. And even though you're a child and Colossus <laughs> is standing much too close to you. <laughs> I'll just let you join the team. And then, so I'm curious, too, at the time. I mean, they they uh, they presented in such a way. But um, this reveal at the end of the issue, we meet Madeline Pryor, and she looks yes. just like Jean. Like, before they really examine that, is does that work as a cliffhanger, like with a different artist? That It doesn't, and that's the problem. Um, it, you can't do that in comics, because every artist draws everyone different. Yeah, totally. I mean, you can, like, oh, it's you can tell it's Cyclops because he's wearing the blue costume with the buccaneer boots and the visor. It doesn't matter who's drawing it. But it's like, she's just a lady with red hair. Like, yeah. we, it, that's the only thing her, her defining character is. So is every red-haired lady in comics supposed to look like Jean Grey? No. How are we supposed to know that this is Jean Grey? We get, and then we're, I mean, I that's one of the weirdest, things that ever happens in x-men i feel like is madeline pryor just that it's whole... vertigo what do you mean it's oh the alfred, movie vertigo it's alfred okay. hitchcock's it's claremont riffing on alfred hitchcock's vertigo this idea that. that there can be two people in the world that are totally unrelated that just happen to look identical Mm-hmm. and someday so, i love yeah. i love madeline pryor i have in my in my hopper a, a madeline pryor article that digs into her origins and, and everything that Claremont was trying to do with her someday um, that, that I'm going to write. But uh, the, the short version is it's vertigo. He's riffing on Hitchcock's vertigo. Mm-hmm. No, that's a cool, I've never heard that before and it makes total sense. And we'll talk about it when we get to 175, but it's his way to give Cyclops a happy ending. That's, mm-hmm. that's all he wanted to do with it. Well, and then unfortunately it's just an ongoing, so it doesn't yeah. turn out that way at all. Correct. But, so then we get into this opening. This is, I think, I mean, I think the last issue probably we get full blast Paul Smith. But this opening, so again, Warren Worthington, the angel, has a human girlfriend. Candy Southern. And and so she comes into the apartment. There's this great just like vertical compositions, which is, I guess, you know, the angel's apartment would have mm-hmm. very high ceilings. That right, makes sense. right. And then she sort of realizes something's going on. It's building tension. She finds the feathers. There's, it gets darker, she's calling Professor X, and then Sunder shows up. We just see his arm in the foreground. But that is just such a perfectly composed opening sequence. The way it builds tension, the characterization, the compositions, it's like it's just phenomenal. Yeah. So then we get uh, Nightcrawler is, uh, is having relations in a tub with his sister, <laughs> and then he gets the call from Professor X. So then he's just like teleporting naked. Uh, across the city, he saves Warren's girlfriend, takes her to his girlfriend's place. We get, uh, who is this from the Hellfire Club? Uh, Sebastian Shaw and Tessa. So that is Sebastian Shaw. And then Emma Frost is in a coma, which this doesn't come back in this run. No, this is this is one of the big kind of dangling plot lines from Claremont's run. This This Hellfire Club business in these next couple of issues... Um, it's ultimately, I think, meant to be, I think the official explanation is that this is all masterminds doing, because he turns out to be the villain in, in 175. Um, but there's some conflicting information about what, what Claremont was really trying to do here. There's some stuff with the Shadow King, um, 
involved. Some of this ties back into the un, unpublished at this time final issue of Ms. Marvel that Claremont wrote, which had mm. it been published in 1979, it would have introduced the Hellfire Club and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants before they showed up in X-Men. Um, but, oh, interesting. Yeah, and then that eventually got published in the 90s as part of uh, the Marvel Superheroes Anthology, uh, which is, I, I, I wrote about that recently, too. Um, it's, it's a wild what-if about how things would have changed if he had been able to introduce those characters sooner, but huh? So it's like it's one of those where like your book got canceled, but now you're still going forward with that story, despite the fact that no one can actually read the stuff that you wrote that you're referencing in this current story. <laughs> it's got to be frustrating working at Marvel, even <laughs> even then. So and then I I think something that's mentioned earlier, maybe with Kitty, about that Emma has a school at this point, right? Yes, she has the Massachusetts Academy. Okay, so that's a long-established thing, because that's been... We did Generation X in this, and it was like, when did she become a teacher, and when did she become not evil? And But I'll ask you another time, because we got a lot to get through. Uncanny X-Men 151 is when the school was established. Her school was established. Her okay. school, yeah. yeah. Well, that's not even true. She has a school in her first appearance during the Dark Phoenix saga. Anyway, continue. Does she? Yeah. Oh, okay. so you don't, you don't see it or anything, but she's trying to... Re- basically, she and Xavier are both trying to recruit Kitty in her first appearance. Oh. To come to her, to come I to their totally respective schools. Knew that. Okay. That's true. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so then we have everyone's in Nightcrawler's girlfriend's apartment. And I love this where they're trying to figure out what to do. They're like, we're going to go into the sewer. And then they all put coats on over their costumes. Yeah. I love that. And like Kitty's still wearing her mask, which she's got a coat on. That's uh, just uh-huh. very funny to me, that kind of stuff. So then they go down into the subways. Is this the first Morlocks? This is the first appearance of the Morlocks. Okay. I love the whole descent where they're kind of moving down the pages in this mm-hmm, really cool mm-hmm. way, too. It's really well done. And then, uh, yeah, so they have a big throwdown. The uh, disease plague touches Kitty, and even though she's able to phase, she gets sick. Uh, there's a lot of fighting and going down into the tunnels. So then Caliban finds Kitty... This is another one where there seems to be a big backstory here. Can can I get the concise version of that? Uh, Caliban first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 148 and um, f- fought Storm and Kitty Pride and Jessica Drew were at a Dazzler performance. Mm. And Caliban sensed them because his power is to detect mutants. And because they were all hanging out together, he's like, mutants. And went after them and saw Kitty and fell in love with her. And then they fight him off. And then he goes to live in the sewers again. And that's that. And then this is the introduction of the Morlocks. And Claremont basically is like, oh, yeah, remember that mutant that fled into the sewers? He's one of these sewer-dwelling mutant Morlocks, too. That makes sense. Yeah. So then we meet Callisto, who's the leader of the Morlocks, who's sort of like Joan Jett, right? Basically, yeah. I think yeah. kind of on purpose. Mm-hmm. And then Joan Jett with an eye patch. Yeah. And so, and then she's basically just like uh, claiming Angel. She's like, this is my He's my hot. Man. I'm going to do yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's my broodmare. So then, uh, yeah, the, the X-Men are just there to rescue. It's all just a rescue mission. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Kitty is hanging out with um, Caliban, trying to get better. That's the end of the issue. So this issue, issue 170, this is my... Um, so I rem- I'm sure you had this experience, although you're in the Midwest. You have Costco out there, right? Yeah, yeah. So a big uh, 
big uh, highlight of my youth was when you would go to Costco with your parents and mm-hmm. get that pack of Marvel comics. It would be like 16 Marvel comics, Ooh. and you could only see the four on the outside. We and got so, those. We got something like that. We bought ours at Toys R Us. Yep. But yeah, uh, yeah I know what you're talking about. And then it would always be like the coolest stuff on the outside. <laughs> right. And, and a bunch of garbage a bunch in of, the bunch of star comics <laughs> and a Conan and a, a Alf Tales and you know. But there was always a classic X Men in there. Mm-hmm. So I got to go. I got the the Costco grab bag when I was like ten and remembered it forever. And there was a classic X-Men, and it was this issue, issue 170. And mm-hmm. so this, you know, is the one issue I read a million times as a kid, because I just had it. Um, so, yeah, and we open with... Uh, so they, they really just get right into Scott and Madeline's relationship, too. They're, like, don't, not waiting around for anything. Right. It's it's very quick. I mean, there's time is passing here, you know, the, yeah. it's between issues. But, yeah, it's... In terms of just number of issues, it, it all happens very fast. Yes, it does. And I mean, I think it's well done, the behind the scenes. Like, it's we know this character well enough that we kind of get, you know, this is, okay, since we last saw him, they've been developing this relationship. We don't need to see every moment they're having together. But, it, I mean, just the whole arc, you know, over this next five issues, they're going to get married. So that happens a little fast. But mm-hmm. so then he tells her about Jean. There's a really cool panel where she's silhouetted by fire behind her, which is both an allusion to Phoenix, but then will also become an allusion to the Goblin Queen, which kind of makes you wonder how how it's probably just a right. Jean allusion that happens to coincide with another thing. But so they're just trying to figure out what's what is this relationship like? I don't know what I would do. What did you do when your wife showed you a photo of the guy who looked exactly like her that died? <laughs> were you flattered or were you disturbed? Okay. Yeah, I was. I, I like to think I You're rolled like, with I guess it I don't pretty feel well. By him, just like just, yeah, I mean, I get it. Look, looked like me. He's dead. So, no, yeah. I mean he's dead. So what do you cool. want? Uh, so then we get back into the Morlock tunnels. Um, there's a big throwdown, but essentially what we get to is that Storm agrees to a knife fight with Callisto, which is really where we're headed. No powers, just a knife throwdown. Yeah. And then Mystique has a dream. Yep. Where she's being pursued by Jason Wynn, who's mastermind, right? And then she's talking to Destiny about it. They're concerned about Rogue. So this is just setting up some stuff that's about to happen. Yeah, and this is, again, this is all tied in with Claremont wanted to do some bigger things with Shadow King and Rogue and the Hellfire Club and Destiny and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, they're just getting messed with. And then, yeah, Callisto, first Nightcrawler challenges Callisto and uh, Storm's like, nah, man, it's got to be me. So then they have a really cool knife fight. And then this is another one where we get some silent pages. Yeah, and this is where you really mm-hmm. see Paul Smith's animation background come into play in the way that this this action scene is depicted with the knife fight. Yeah, really nice choreography. He's really good at drawing bodies and distinctive bodies. Like, everyone's got a different mm-hmm. body type, which is pretty uncommon in comics, I would say. Like, I love the... There's the sequence where Callisto goes to throw the knife at Storm to be like, you know, this is the knife that you're going to use. And so Smith does the like a, a vertical panel and the movement is the knife. So he's got like the speed lines, basically, of the knife sort of spinning through the air as it falls towards Storm. Mm-hmm. 
And then the next panel is a horizontal panel, and now the action has switched, and it's Storm that does the movement, and he draws her arm in, like, five different positions as she sort of catches the knife in midair and backhand. Mm -hmm. And just that transition from, like, the knife has the motion, but then she takes the motion with her arm. Yep. It's also lined up on the page, like the falling of the knife, and then you go to the bottom left, the knife's falling like at her shoulder and then so that Mm -hmm. and the placement of the knife in the air at her shoulder like gives you a really nice indication of how swiftly she does that motion that she waits till the last second like that's it's really well done and so yeah she straight up stabs callisto in the heart again this is the the evolution of storm she's gone from you know i'm gonna kill myself rather than kill this brood you know as a way to kill this brood to now i'm stabbing Callisto through the heart to get back my team. And then Storm is now the leader of the Morlocks, which, is there a short version of how that plays out? Not well. Okay. Um, yeah, it, 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 this is, it's a big misstep on Claremont's part, because you've got these Morlocks, and the whole idea is they're ugly, mm-hmm. basically. And that's why they're living in the sewers. They're mutants, but they don't have cool superpowers, and they don't look hot in a costume, so they're feared and hated, and they live in the sewers. And then the hunky X-Men meet them Mm -hmm. and storm becomes their leader. And she's like, you don't have to live in the sewers. Come live in our mansion full of pretty people. And they're like, no, we're cool. We'll we'll stay down here. And the X-Men are like, whew, I was afraid those Ugmos were going to come ugly up our place. They want to live down here. We're not going to ask any questions. We're going to get the hell out of here. Sidestepping the fact that the Morlocks are not at all capable of making that decision. Like, there's a lot of complex psychological nuance that goes into being, you know, so having so much self-hatred that you'd rather live in a sewer (laughs) than in a mansion. And the X-Men are just like, cool. Right. We'll see. We're not going to get you help. We're not going to try to counteract that at all. We're just going to peace out to our mansion on the surface and enjoy the sunlight. Have fun, Ugmos. Well, I guess that actually happens in the next issue, which we'll get to in a second. There's a reason why I didn't read that. But so first then, uh, Scott tells Madeline that he's a mutant. Which is, she's like, all right, let me check my list here. You uh, are obsessed with your dead ex-girlfriend who looks exactly like me. And you shoot lasers out of your eyes. I'm in. Yep. Marriage material. I think it's the biggest example of, like, uh, the X-Men's pretty good at not having, like, incidental support. I mean, I guess there's a lot of girlfriends that aren't that big a deal. But you kind of wonder, like, what's, what's her taking this? So then the next issue, I didn't read this is a weird one but yeah so real quick i just want to point out in terms of paul smith um he drew a lot more morlocks into the background of these two issues Mm. than claremont intended Mm. and that is one of the reasons that we got the mutant massacre crossover years later interesting because claremont wanted to thin the herd so to speak and not have so many mutants running around after paul smith was like dozens i'll draw in hundreds yeah which you know you know comics artists always wanting to draw more crowd scenes yeah, you're so, right. <laughs> so this run is interesting because there's a fill-in issue, issue 171. It's Walt Simonson, but it's yep. not at all an inventory story. It's totally no. the next issue. And so you're familiar with this. I just skipped it, and we're going to basically skip it, but you can't completely skip it because then you miss a lot of stuff. So can you very quickly tell me what happens? Rogue joins the X-Men. Okay. But we also get that whole uh, Morlock thing you just talked about happens, right? Yeah, basically Storm's like, stop attacking people. 
Yeah. And and we find out that Callisto survives. They have a healer in the Morlocks, and he manages to keep her alive. So Storm didn't actually kill her, but yeah. she didn't know that they had a healer. So for all intents and purposes, as far as Storm's concerned, she killed Callisto. She's in charge of the Morlocks. The Morlocks are like, nah, we're cool down here. Storm's like, great, I'm going to go back to my mansion. <laughs> and then Rogue shows up. She wants Professor X's help. Uh, dealing with the fact that she has Carol Danvers' memories rattling around inside her head, and she can't control her powers, so she can't touch anyone. Uh, she doesn't get to know the sweet caress of a man or woman, <laughs> um, and she wants his help. And the X Men are like, "You're evil," and then Professor X is like, "Whatever, we help mutants, and she needs help." That's how we do it. It keeps happening over and over again. I mean, I always like the kind of moral ambiguity of the X Men, where it's like, "Well, yeah. we're all Wolverine was a berserker animal right. when we took him in, and now we love him." So. Well, and they're like, "We're all equally persecuted by humanity, so some of us yeah. are more evil than others, but at the same time, we got it's like drag queens, like." We may fight amongst each other, <laughs> but when somebody hates drag queens, we'll all band together. You know? Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. So then we get back to 172. So this was really cool to me because I have read the Wolverine miniseries a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I always wondered what happened between Lady Monaco and uh, Logan because they're engaged. They send the... Uh, wedding invitation at the end and then i was always like well then what happened and i never read the issues don't forget the beer right exactly yeah scrawled on and uh so yeah then we get what is it a three-part two-part okay so um yeah and then i like all the tension around rogue that everyone's pretty uncomfortable wolverine hasn't seen that she's in the x-men now he's pretty mad at her um yeah because he and he and carol danvers were old friends right yep from their super spy days so then we get basically a direct sequel, a follow-up to the Wolverine miniseries. It's the same yeah. characters. It's Yukio and Mariko. Um, Silver Samurai. Is Silver Samurai's not in the miniseries, is he? No. No. But he's thrown up in this, and he's Mariko's uh, brother, half-brother or brother-in-law. Or Cousin? Half-brother? Step-brother, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And so uh, there's also a really interesting one where Yukio is, like, bounding across the city home and then she slipped and she's about to fall to her death and then storm saves her and <clears throat> i just thought that'd be interesting if you had like a long-running superhero character who's like you know if daredevil's just like jumping through the city and then he just slips and dies and like that's the <laughs> end you know? and uh it's part of like her carefree persona or whatever but you're like no she really would have died like that right, would have been the end of that character that. that's kind of seems yeah seems relevant well, if you want to, if you want to squint a little bit, it wouldn't be difficult to read the Storm Yukio interactions here in a in a sexual sort of subtext. Oh. That this is this is part of Storm of that arc we've talked about of Storm that Storm is going through. Um, Yukio is a, a it, contextually there's no subtext uh, contextually a big part of that arc for Storm and the transfer transformation that she undergoes. But um, there, you could read some subtext into it that it that it is a uh, um, there is some sexual awakening happening in Storm mm. here as well. Storm has never been; she's never had sex with a woman in X Men comics, so has she? Not canonically, no. It's like implied in some Claremont stuff, like this. I mean, there's there's some implications there. Interesting um, that, that you can read into if you want to. Oh, that's interesting yeah. because they're so. Um, and I don't have a problem with it, but they love. They love making characters gay these days, and I'm surprised if there was any any implication whatsoever that Storm would have sex with the woman that they haven't totally. I mean, yeah, and they 
they love making characters gay, but they're still not allowed to do it, so they just make the subtext increasingly louder. They made like Cyclops or not Cyclops, uh, Iceman's gay now, and you know, Iceman is gay. He and one because of the this is far afield of where we are, but uh, in in large part because of the reaction to Iceman coming out as gay is one of the reasons that Marvel has kind of told their writers. Um, do what you want via subtext, but don't make it text. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, yeah. I think that, I mean, we don't need to talk about gay Iceman for too long, but I think <laughs> it was kind of a, a weak, to me, that's like how they do it. We're like, let's take a character that nobody ever really cared that much about, that there is no real gay subtext for, and let's just make him gay to have something to do. Whereas, like, actually making Storm overtly at least bisexual would would be interesting mm-hmm. and would actually uh have some grounding in the character's history so you know but they don't yeah so yeah there's some really cool stuff too like just a lot of panels on a page there's an exchange between wolverine and Aurora. i think it's where they're all getting poisoned but mm-hmm. just a mm-hmm. lot of pa- small panels and back and forth and so then they all get poisoned uh they all get poisoned except for rogue is what happens. Yeah, yeah, because she's she has a, a level of invulnerability from Ms. Marvel's powers, and then Storm. Storm doesn't get poisoned either. Oh, because she's like busy. She's out with uh, Yukio. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they see uh, a phoenix in the sky. Mm-hmm. There's a little setup. So then, yeah. So then, the, uh, issue one seventy three is now Wolverine and Rogue are the not poisoned crew. Right, because his healing factor is keeping it at bay. Yeah, which is... But this is a point in time where Wolverine is not... Like, in the movie, where he gets shot, and then you see the, like, wound heal up and the bullet gets spit out. Um, that wasn't like that at this point, where it's like, he heals, but, like, if you poison him, he's, he's slowed down while his body fights off that poison, and it's not instantaneous. Yeah, his healing powers got more and more powerful over time. Yeah. To the point where yep. he's, like, an alpha-level mutant, right? And it's healing, like... You could basically incinerate him now, and he would, like, heal up. Yep. So then there's some really cool uh, Wolverine and Rogue uh, just, like, fighting crime. They're just, like... uh, Taking on the Yakuza. Yeah. And so they're trying to figure out what's what. What what are they after exactly here? I'm trying to remind me. Um, I mean, they're basically trying to protect Mariko from Viper and Silver Samurai. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to keep... So Mariko is trying to br- make her Crime Lord father's businesses legitimate. And mm-hmm. Silver Samurai wants to keep them as a crime family, basically. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they're they're fighting Viper and Silver Samurai to stop that. Got it. Yeah, and then I didn't even you know, think I even mentioned that Viper shows. And is this the first Viper? No. Oh, okay. no. She's been around. Yeah. So then, yeah, we just get a lot of hijinks in Japan. There's ninja stars are thrown. Rogue fights some um, ninjas. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a really, really great... Is this a classic? Like the three-page duel between yeah. Wolverine and... It's like wordless, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And it's an homage to the Frank Miller Wolverine. It's it's similar to the Wolverine-Shingen duels in in that series. Yeah, it's got the four kind of panoramic panels and the... Yep. Yeah, so really well done. And uh, so he doesn't kill Silver Samurai. And Rogue... Rogue takes a blast that that uh, was meant for Mariko, p- 
pushes her out of the way and, and takes it herself. And it's powerful enough that it kind of knocks her out for a little bit. And so then Wolverine lets her take some of his healing power to heal herself. And that's basically what earns Wolverine's respect. Yeah. How Rogue earns his respect and is like, all right, you're one of us now. You took a, you took a laser for me, so... You took a laser for my fiance. Yeah, that's even better. So then we get the reveal of Punk Storm. Punk Storm Which with her is... mohawk and her leather vest. And so, what do you know about this? Um, so they wanted to give Storm a new look, mm-hmm. and Paul Smith did a whole bunch of different designs, and the the leather and mohawk one he included as a joke Mm -hmm. and louise simonson who was the editor at the time said thought that if they're gonna change storm's look everyone's gonna get mad no matter what so fuck it let's Mm -hmm. give her the most outrageous changed look possible and that's how we ended up with punk storm and how long does she have this appearance more or less till Fall of the Mutants crossover, uh, which is Uncanny 225 through 227. Oh, wow. So for like 50 issues. Yeah. Oh, I she, loses, she loses her powers in issue 185 um, and then continues to be with the X-Men powerless huh. until 225 when she gets them back. But um, more or less has the Mohawk. And the punk look right up until Fall of the Mutants. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know it was that long. And mm-hmm. then I guess Kitty's reaction of running away is based on um, Walt Simonson, right? He went on vacation and he cut his hair and beard. And then I think his daughter ran out of the room. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I had never heard that before. That's, that's pretty cool. That's on the Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or I might be getting the exactly who it was wrong, but it was mm-hmm, like a... Mm-hmm. It was a callback to something similar that had happened. Yeah, Kitty Kitty freaks out because it's you know Storm is this you know motherly figure to her, and um, you know it's like mom went out and got a new boyfriend kind of thing. Yeah, and she's freaked out by it. It's cool. And then we get Madeline kind of mixing with the X Men for the first time. She's holding Lockheed. That's a really nice sequence. I love that sequence when she just grabs. It's like the four panels of like Cyclops is talking to someone off panel. And she realizes that Lockheed's in the basket, and she's like, Scott, and oh, yeah, and um, what have you gotten me into? And, yeah. like, she stays f- facing the camera the whole time until she turns to him. Like, it's just great, like, co- classic comedic styling there. Really well done, and sort of understated, but uh, not slapsticky exactly, but it's got right, a nice... Right, right. Yeah. So then, so I never knew what happened with Wolverine Lady... Mariko, and now that I know, it's the harshest thing I've ever seen, which is <laughs> go to the wedding, and she says, there'll be no wedding. He says, why? Because you are not worthy. So what did you do when you were going to get married and your wife just <laughs> said at the altar, you are not worthy? Well, as any, as any good uh, husband-to-be would do, I uh, naturally assumed that she was being manipulated by a supervillain. And uh, confronted him, defeated him, and then was thus allowed to go on with my wife. Ah, that's another one where it ends with a wordless page, which, again, I don't think was intended mm-hmm. to be. But I think that was another one where Claremont was like, just let those pictures tell that story, <laughs> man. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> this is also There's also one of my favorite moments in this issue where uh, uh, they're doing the whole, like, Cyclops is introducing Madeline to the X-Men 
And so everyone's kind of like, he knows she looks just like Jean <laughs> Grey, right? Yeah. But Lalandra's there as Professor X's date to the wedding. And she's like, oh, God, it's the Phoenix. The Phoenix is returned. And, like, whips out a lightsaber and Colossus has to hold her back. And I just love the idea that, like, Lalandra travels with a lightsaber. Oh, yeah. yeah. You have to if you're a space empress. Oh, yeah, right, she does. Right. She full on pulls out a lightsaber. It's true. <laughs> it's like there's nothing else that could be. Yep. No other explanation. No. Uh, so if it if it makes you feel any better, Ryan, um, we do find out that Mariko is being uh, influenced by Mastermind here. Yeah. And uh, Wolverine, when, when that gets revealed, Wolverine does go back and try to reconcile with her, but then she turns him away because she is not worthy. Oh, what, does that happen? That happens later. Yeah, that's a couple issues after, like 177, 178, okay. something like that. I was going to ask you, yeah, because it seems yeah. like... She's basically like, until I've cleaned up my father's criminal empire, I am not worthy to marry you, and um, that never happens. It's been 40 years, yeah, it's still yeah. still not... Uh, 40 years, which is like six years and... Right, X-Men. right, and she dies eventually. Oh, man! She gets, she gets killed, yeah. Uh, so we open issue 174 with Madeline in space... Which again, she's just having quite quite a range of experiences in this relationship. <laughs> and this issue is titled "Romances," and this is this is basically like 168. This is all interpersonal stuff. Yeah. This is character drama. Yeah, I'm a little weird out by Hepzibah and Corsair. She's like a <laughs> skunk woman. I don't know. That's a little strange to me. And then this is where we get Carol Danvers is in. Uh, Binary. She's now a Star Jammer. Yep. And then uh, Scott has been invited to join the Star Jammers. He's gonna go, and now he's not so sure. Because he's got Madeline. Yeah, we got more uh, Professor X doing the Olivia Newton-John, let's get physical. He's uh, (laughs) trying to get his strength back. A lot of on-screen smooching. Including between Colossus and Kitty Pride. Oh uh, yeah, we haven't got there yet. So, so yeah, we got uh, Wolverine just getting stone cold dissed by uh, <laughs> by his by his lady. She goes, "As I told you, you're not worthy." He says, "That's not good enough," which is the perfect <laughs> response to being totally shut down for not being good enough. You know, being unworthy. Yeah. So this is where Kitty goes to, and again, like I like, I really like that Colossus is like a painter. He's like into painting. Do we ever see his paintings? Oh, yeah, every once in a while, they, 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 uh, you see him. What kind of a painter is he? Mm, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question. Is he like abstract or figurative? Mm, he's more figurative than abstract, but I would say he is whatever the artist drawing the issue when they make one of his paintings a plot point wants him to be. I just, I kind of imagine him as one of those like post World War II, like, life is nothing. Like, there's no representation. It's just like drips and splatters. That's and... what he should be. But I think he's more of the like, I am trying to capture real life to show my parents what life in America is like. Mm, it's like a Mc... Because I am not good with words, you see. It's like a McDonald's hamburger. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, then Kitty just basically tricks him into making out with her, which is kind of interesting. Uh-huh. Which is well yeah. done. I mean, it's a cute scene. You just, you just have to turn your brain off and be like, yeah, he's 16, not 19. That's really it. Yeah, you really have yeah. to. But, and I mean, is there any... Uh, I'm grabbing at straws here, but so there's no version of this where he's 16. You're saying he's a... No. All no. right, that's too bad. And Jim Shooter basically makes Claremont break them up. 
And that's in Secret Wars. Yeah. Which is a real... Well, <laughs> yeah, Jim Shooter breaks them up in Secret Wars. Yeah. And thus Claremont, being a professional writer, is like, fine, I guess I have to address that in my comic, and breaks them up. But there's a lot of really harsh breakups in X-Men comics, I have to yeah. say. There's a lot of like, ah, I found someone else. Yep. So, and then they go up to Storm's room in the attic. So she used to have all these plants, right? And they're gone. Yep. And they go up there to Kitty and, and Colossus are dry humping up there. <laughs> um, so you don't see much of this anymore either. Rogue is recovering from getting shot with a laser. Like, people are got stronger and stronger, I feel like, in mm-hmm. superhero comics over the years. Yeah. Yep, definitely. And we got uh, Kurt and his girlfriend having a long distance. Rogue. Yep. Oh, and he's remembering about Gene turning into feet he's telling uh rogue about it he's like so yeah. here's what's up and it's a it's a good bit of organic ex you know catch up if you haven't read those issues right right which at this point you just go to 7-eleven and buy comics so how would you know what happened three years ago you know unless you've been reading it that long or you know aside from the fact that as john byrne criticized claremont he won't let go of the phoenix stuff and brings it up all the damn time it's true yeah another <laughs> one is um so Madeline was in a plane crash, like the moment Gene died. Yes, and uh, I'm assuming that gets explained in like five years. Yeah, I mean the Inferno stuff ties all of that together. At, at the time, again, Claremont's just going for uh, coincidence, and and the problem is that he does all of this stuff that makes you think that there's more to it, mm-hmm. and then the answer is no. No, there's not more to it, and that's just not a very satisfying answer to something that is sort of set up and structured as a classic mystery. Right, and then later there is more to it, though. And then later they're like, okay, fine, there is more to it. So then we get, uh, yeah, so then Mastermind is kind of hanging out in the wings. Oh, yeah, so this is cool, and then Scott just straight up says, are you Phoenix? (laughs) And she punches him in the face, which is cool. With good cause. I mean, that's what I would do, I think, if my... My lover was like, are you my former lover reincarnated? Um, I don't like the term lover, but anyway. uh, (laughs) I got to say, though, if you're Cyclops, you're living this life, it's a legitimate question. It is a legitimate question. And she does, in the end, end up being a, she's a clone of Jean Grey, right? Yes, yes. So We, We did not know this then. That was not the intent. But if we're talking within the established official you know narrative of the x-men yes she is a clone of gene gray created by mr sinister in order to uh uh harvest the genetic offspring of cyclops and gene gray there you go so then uh and then she turns into phoenix yeah and then we got 175 this is our big climactic issue where we say tearful goodbye to small paul smith unfortunately this is my single favorite comic book issue of all time is that true Uncanny X-Men 175. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. So that was one thing I was going to say, too, is that I'm surprised I didn't say this at the beginning, but as I was deciding to do this podcast and kind of reviewing, you know, who would want to do it and what would they want to do, the only run that multiple people brought up was Paul Smith's (laughs) X-Men. Really? Yeah. And I (laughs) saved it for you because I wanted to have you on and I know that you know X-Men. You know, like, you know, X-Men more, I mean, as you've demonstrated uh, <laughs> throughout this. And uh, and it's funny, too, because I haven't really talked X-Men with you that much. So I didn't know you could just be like, that was issue 138, which was fine. <laughs> but uh, so 
I, I didn't know that. And I feel like this is sort of a deep cut. Like, that's one thing I wanted to say about this run is part of, I think, what I loved about it so much is, like, Dark Phoenix is really great. I think it's a mm-hmm. little bit of a you had to be there because it's been referenced so much that it's sort mm-hmm. of like I've never seen Titanic, but I could tell you what happens. Right, when right. The boat sinks. But, you know, like I can tell you, <laughs> tell you everything that happens, you know, um, the whole right, romance right. and he draws her and... Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like this is more of a deep cut. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't even know that they resolved the Wolverine engagement in these. Like, right? So it's, right. it's. I mean, like what we talked about the characterization and how well uh, the characters are kind of visually described by Paul Smith. The tone is really strong, but it's also just like it's not an overdone run. It's sort of quiet to me. It's like kind of quietly the best X Men comics. Right. Right. So. Gene appears before. Well, tell me actually, why is this your all-time favorite X Men comic? <laughs> so I, um, uh, so I love Cyclops. Mm-hmm. Cyclops is my guy, mm-hmm. and this is his swan song. This is this is peak Cyclops. He takes on the X Men single-handedly mm-hmm. with a little help from the Danger Room, defeats them all: Colossus, Rogue, Storm, Wolverine. These are heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. He takes them all on. He defeats them. He saves the girl. He marries the girl. And he rides off into the sunset. Mm. It's the perfect ending for Cyclops. It's the... He he shows that he is the best. That he is the best of the X-Men. And then he drops the mic and walks away. Hmm. I can see that. It's not the end, of course. He comes back. Um, but you could read this and be like, this is the final word on Cyclops and it's a hell of a final word. Well, do you feel like, is there a part of you that wishes that they had retired the character at this point that this was, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They did some cool stuff with him afterwards though. It's, it's Paul Smith art and it's John Romita Jr. art. Uh And I love John Romita Jr. Yeah. As a, as an X-Men artist. And so it's both of them on one issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's tough to beat that. Um, no, Claremont, yeah, Claremont's intent was to retire Cyclops at this point and bring him back for stuff like big events, stuff like Secret Wars or, you know, big anniversary issues or whatnot, which is kind of what he did. Um, you know, he's in X-Men 200. He uh, uh, pops up in a in a Alpha, X-Men Alpha Flight limited series, but he's retired. He comes out of retirement every once in a while. He helps out and then goes back to his, his hot wife. And So he really uh, splits after this. Like, he leaves the series? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. That's pretty yep, interesting. One, 176, uh, he and Madeline fight a squid on their honeymoon. Yeah, I remember, yeah. And, uh, and then he's gone. He comes back. He gets picked up by the Beyonder for Secret Wars, but then disip- you know, he's gone after that, and then he comes back for X-Men Alpha Flight, and then he's back right around 200. And then that's when X-Factor launches, and powers outside of Claremont's control decided that they were going to reunite the original X-Men and bring, bring back Jim Gray. Gray. Yeah. And so then the character was basically taken away from Claremont. He didn't get to keep him in that sort of retired, reservist role, and Cyclops became an everyday, monthly character again, and has been ever since. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. So yeah, Cyclops fights all the X-Men because Mastermind is using his powers to convince them that he is Phoenix. Dark Phoenix. And they're yeah. at, I guess they're at no point like, why is uh, Phoenix... I mean, they sort of do. Why is he shooting lasers? At, why is he shooting yeah, lasers? Yeah, they reach a certain point where they're like, 
Dark we we earlier we thought we saw Dark Phoenix obliterate Manhattan. Yeah. Why is why is Dark Phoenix using the danger room against us? Yeah, and why is she like leaping around and shooting lasers out of her eyes and Right. Yeah. Right. But uh so I'll I'll tell you what I don't like about this issue though. <laughs> just to <laughs> just to throw it back at you. Is that I don't like a I mean, I guess it's so classic Marvel or classic comics period, but I don't like when there's a big astonishing reveal and then it's a it's bullshit, which is what this is, which is like, oh man, Jean came back. She's been gone for what, 50 issues at this point? Almost, yeah. And so she comes back and then oh, it was mastermind. I mean, I guess it's par for the course, right? Like when in Rome, you got to mm-hmm. But I to me it's a it's a bit of a jerk off the whole premise of it. It is. And and to your point, it's an interesting it's it's interesting that you say that because it would be more I think it would read as more of a jerk off if I was reading this in real time mm. in 1983 not knowing what came after it but reading it for the first time like I did as a back issue after reading a bunch of Cyclops and X-Factor and Cyclopses with the resurrected Jean Grey and all of that it reads much less like a jerk off because you, even if I didn't know the specifics, I knew sort of the broad strokes of what was going on here. And that that wasn't actually Jean Grey coming back because I'd already read the real time that Jean Grey came back from the dead. Totally. And uh, also to their credit, they did like do a lot of foreshadowing to build up to the reveal of mastermind. Like, right. But it is, I mean, like I said before, it is very much a, we are going to tease a mystery and the solution to that mystery is there was no mystery with Matt with Madeline. Yeah. 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 That part's weird too. I mean, I think the whole Madeline Pryor thing is just so weird. I mean, just the idea yeah. of like, what if there's an exact double of something? it's just a strange, uh, I do like when, uh, so yeah. So then Cyclops is fighting them in the danger room. He's using the danger room strategically and he's wearing a COVID mask for yeah. a page. It's cool. It's very ahead of his time. Very heroic yep. of him to wear a mask mm. to not infect others, even when they're fighting yep. him. And so, yeah, he just takes out the X-Men. So, yeah, and then we should say that this is the last bunch of pages of this are uh, are uh, Jaramita Jr. coming back. And he had drawn yep. X-Men before, or is this the first? This is his first. I mean, technically, he drew the, the fourth annual. But, yeah, this is the beginning of his first run. He okay. will leave, and then he comes back in the 90s for a little bit. He comes back, yeah. So, uh, and I, I mean, you know, I love John Major Jr. This is when he's first really developing his style, which develops over yeah. a long time. Like, he's mm-hmm. someone that you can really follow. Like, I mean, I guess he was, you know, a little nepotism. He drew Contest of Champions, and he was just like a mm-hmm. real how to draw comics the Marvel way kind of a guy. And then yep. he develops this weird style over time, which I think comes. Full blast. That's one of the runs I want to do is Ann Nascenti and mm-hmm. Jeremy Jr. on Daredevil. That's one of the great runs that's not... And that's that's really where John Romita Jr.'s what we think of as his style takes shape is is that run. I think so. And he's inked by um an EC artist. What's it? Al Williamson. Al Williamson. Which is yeah. just such a great I mean, to yeah. this day, like those two together is just such. Yeah, a and, and Williamson inks some of his stuff towards the end of his X Men run, and it's really nice. Yeah, it's it's not it's not quite there yet, but it's it's really sharp with Williamson on inks. Yeah, there's a nice 
Comedy. I love John. I love John Romita Jr.'s X Men. It's very much a nostalgia thing for me um, because I was reading all of this stuff through X Men classics at the same time that I was reading the new stuff, and so I have this weird thing where. I didn't read this for the first time in the 80s, but it was also some of the first X-Men stuff, that some of the most formative X-Men stuff that I read. Mm. So a lot of that John Romita Jr. run is is imprinted on me, and I have a lot of affection mm. for it's it. It's sort of a quieter run, too, right? It's like less, it is. Well, because this is events. because of what Claremont started to do with Smith. It's there. There are no big story arcs. There are no. It's it's one and two issue plots. Mm. It's a lot of character stuff. It's a lot of just we're doing arcs over time. We're building human mutant hysteria. We're building this, we're, we're shifting the X-Men into this anti-establishment mode. The, the brotherhood of evil mutants are becoming government agents. Mm -hmm. The establishment is literally evil. And so then the X-Men have to go against the establishment to combat that. And, and uh, it's very non-traditional kind of stuff at that point. It's beautiful. Beautiful stuff. All because of Paul Smith. Thank you, Paul Smith. <laughs> That's the end conclusion. Thank you, Paul Smith. So then we get, <laughs> I don't know if it's the first time we'll see it, but we'll see it many more times in different in different uh, uh, cases of the event. But uh, Scott goes to Gene's, gray, Gene's grave <laughs> and is like, sorry, Gene, you know, I'm going to go marry your clone. And I'll always, uh, always love you, but goodbye. I'm moving on. And then so... That was meant. That's what. That was Claire. The end for Claremont. That was supposed to be the end of Scott and Gene, and he's made his peace and moved on. Wow! And then he himself ends up writing them together a bunch of times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, then he just straight up marries Madeline Pryor, which is, I guess, I can agree it's a cool. I guess one seventy five is like a big number, yeah. but it did. Yeah. It did feel, and I think that there's a cool quality. Like I think Madeline is written well. Her dialogue gives her some character, you know. Yeah. But it's yeah. like it's it's weird it's too fast it is very fast yeah especially if you read it in like one sitting yeah. in a you know like in a trade paper they, they put um 168 through 175 was collected in a, a trade paperback called from the ashes yeah it was one of the earlier trade collections that, that you could get i mean it was around when i first got into comics and I could just you read it in that sitting, and it's just like holy shit! This is like he's gone from met her to married her in it's like, six issues. You didn't even meet her parents or anything, like yeah. So yeah, because yeah. she doesn't have any, because she's a clone. Here's my parents: a glass jar <laughs> and Mister Sinister. Mister Sinister. <laughs> so yeah, thus concludes this run. So any final? Uh, where do you rank this among X Men runs? Do you have X Men runs you like more than this, or? I mean, like I said, it, I have a lot of affection for the Romita Jr. run that follows this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is probably technically, this is more technically proficient than John Romita Jr. I mean, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that Paul Smith is a better artist than young John Romita Jr. at this hmm. point. Um But if, if this isn't the top, it's damn near close to it. And me. then Paul Smith does very few comics after this. No, he does a he does end up doing a little Doctor Strange. Yeah. Um with Roger Stern. He he pencils the two part 
X-Men Alpha Flight limited series that Cyclops and Madeline come back for, which is a really, I really like that. Um, It gets collected in the Asgardian Wars paperback Mm, a lot of times. I want that paperback because that's got that Art Adams stuff. And it's got that Art Adams stuff too. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a really fun with that New Mutant special and everything. I've bought that New Mutant special for a dollar like five times in my life. I know, it's great. It's a great book. Um, But yeah, when, when Loki gives Storm Thor's hammer in that story, that's in response to the events of the X-Men Alpha Flight Limited series. Oh, interesting. But so, and uh, then Paul Smith was gone. I mean, I remember when Paul Smith came back and he did so he does a chance. he does a uh, uh, X-Factor story. Oh, okay. Um, Judgment War 42 through 50, which uh, is much maligned, but I argue is a little underrated. Um, but it's a it's a X Men in space story. They go to an alien planet and stuff, and then he comes back for a couple issues in the nineties. Really? Yeah, uh, right after Age of Apocalypse, the first two issues of the second volume of X Men coming out of Age of Apocalypse, so forty three and forty two and forty three are drawn by Paul Smith. That blows my mind. And that's from an era where like a bunch of 10-year-olds are like, what's this? I want Joe Maggerera. <laughs> right, Just... right. And of course, I loved it at the time. Did I'm you? like, you know, 14 or whatever. It's like, oh, it's Paul Smith. He's back. Oh, that's And then cool. he was gone. And yeah. Well, so then he made his big comeback. I remember I was, you know, around that age when he did Leave It to Chance, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. seemed like it was, it was just one of those things where like, if one more thing had lined up, because it was James Robinson, like top of his game, James Robinson and Paul Smith doing a creator-owned book. It was sort of a YA, kind of very Harry Potter-ish before Harry mm-hmm. Potter. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like it was going to catch on, and then something went wrong, and there wasn't an issue for like a year, and then it kind of petered out. But that, yeah. to me, was one of the great missed opportunities. I feel like if there had been six volumes of Leave It to Chance when like the YA boom happened, those guys would have been set but yeah. i don't know what he was doing and he went back to animation or something but i think he did yeah, yeah. Commer- like commercial art of yeah. some kind but yeah he's one of those guys who dipped into comics and was al- almost too good for the medium or something yeah <laughs> well or for yeah. mainstream comics but what uh, real quick i want to ask you before we wrap up what what would you say are some of the other top x-men runs to you are we talking strictly x-men none of the spin-offs or anything mm, um no nah, we whatever I mean, you know, Claremont Sienkiewicz on New Mutants oh. is, is great stuff. Um, I have a lot of affection for Louise Simonson's X-Factor, particularly when she's with Walt. Um, I think she oh. does a lot of really good work to salvage a terrible premise and some terrible characterization on Cyclops's part mm. um, from early in that series. And then she comes on board and wrestles that into... Um, into uh, uh, a workable series that's a lot of fun. Who'd she take it over from? Uh, Bob Layton and oh, Jackson Geis. Very well. They launched it. I, I wrote a whole article about that um, once upon a time. You can find that at Comics XF. Um, but yeah, they took it over from those guys because they launched it and were like, "This, this isn't working. We're getting the hell out of here." Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I like Claremont Burn. I, I mean, it's great stuff. Yeah. Um. I think Days of Future Past is arguably the most important X-Men story of all time. Mm. All right. Um, I mean, Dark Phoenix is great. You're not wrong. I mean, it's tough to get into it now if you've never read it because it's so seminal and so well-known. But it's um, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there beneath the surface that's 
that's good. Yeah, and that I don't want to um, say so much. You had to be there as more like you wish you'd been there. Yeah, like, that's I, a real. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, you, you wish you'd been. I'd love to have experienced that in real time. Yeah, tell like I read Preacher monthly for most of it, and to me, it's just oh, so nice. much better yeah. as a serial yeah. than as it's good as collections. But waiting every month for it and the twists and turns, like I feel, yeah, I feel like that must have been the case for that era. I mean, I like it. Jim Lee was the artist when I got into X-Men. So, yeah. I mean, I love Jim Lee, but his his run is a really interesting one because it's it's the tension where he wants to bring things back to the traditional superhero mode while Claremont still wants to push forward with his new and different stuff. Um, I think the Sylvestri run is a little underrated hmm. um, because that's that's a nice fusion of of super heroics and Claremont still getting to push the boundaries a little bit. Um, I mean, newer stuff. I don't want to sound like an old man that says that, that none of the, you know, nothing after Claremont is any good. Cause that's not true. I mean, Joe Majeria um, in the nineties. Yeah. Is, Scott Lobdell. Mm. Yeah. Lobdell is great when he's doing quiet issues. Is that right? The yeah the 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 post crossover quiet issue is what I call them, mm. the the epilogues or the dealing with the aftermath of the big crossovers. That's Lobdell's wheelhouse, and he writes them really well. And they're a lot of they're they're fun and they're very emotional, and I I really like them. But um, his other stuff is yeah very hit or miss. It's just it's very editorial driven. I mean that's the the X Men of the nineties. It's Bob Harris is running that ship. And everybody is just kind of taking orders from him mm, mm. at that point. And then where are you uh, where are you at with the uh, the current the Hickman stuff? I I like it. I really do. I mean, it's it's there's so much of it that of course it's all very hit or miss. There's some terrible stuff in there. There's some stuff that is way better than the other stuff. But just the sort of the overall direction of the line, the setup, the status quo. I think it has a lot of potential. I'm I've really been digging it. Um a lot of the things that they've been doing there. Right. Is that still going? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's still Krakoa. I mean, Hickman's gone. Um, there's a lot of debate and <sighs> Twitter about, you know, how much, how much they're operating off of what Hickman wanted to do and how much is kind of, they're doing their own thing and how much that matters or doesn't matter in the way that social media gnashes its teeth about things. But um, it's still, it's still the, the basic premise is still there. Right on. Well, cool. I guess we should we should wrap this up. Probably uh, talk yeah. to talk to you about X Men for a long time. But <laughs> right. <laughs> um, cool. Thanks for being on the show, Austin. And uh, where what are you working on? Where can I find you online? Uh, well, as you mentioned before, my my website is therealgentlemanofleisure.com. That's where you'll find my examination reviews of every issue of X Men and every spinoff book. Um, up to uh, 1997. I'm just starting in on 97 right now. So um, uh, you can find those there, therealgentlemanleisure.com. I have a Patreon uh, supporting that, patreon.com slash G-O-L. Um, if you s- support me there for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to um, Patreon-exclusive reviews. Right now I'm reviewing the Claremont Bolton classic X-Men backup stories mm. and season three of the animated series. Oh, okay. um, I've also just started, uh, I've reached the point in my overview that I've hit the first Deadpool ongoing series. Oh. And I am reviewing that as a Patreon exclusive because the only way I could convince myself to 
read it and write about it was to get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I also have, uh, I, I reviewed every issue of Ms. Marvel. I read, I reviewed every issue of the champions, oh, wow. um, over there, uh, X-Men 2099. If you were a big <laughs> 2099 fan in the nineties, oh, Ron Lim. Yeah. So, uh, start throwing a couple bucks my way and you can read all kinds of fun stuff over there. And then, um, uh, you can read my writing at, uh, comicsxf.com. Um, I review some of the current X books there. I've done some articles, like I mentioned, one on the creation of X Factor. I've also got some stuff at comicbookherald.com. Um, I just wrote an overview of Ms. Marvel's first series and, and Claremont's role in that uh, for that site. Uh, Shelf Dust, I wrote a, a, a Shelf Dust 500, so 500 words on, on Kenny X-Men 175 and why I love it. Wow. So you can... Uh, by the time this goes up, that should have posted. So I'm around the internet writing about comics and shit. Right on. You're still doing the podcast, right? Yeah. And you follow me on Twitter at Austin Gordon. And yeah, I'm one of the uh, the now three co-hosts of a very special episode uh, podcast, which is available anywhere that you go to listen to podcasts, where uh, me and uh, my buddy David and my buddy Carolyn talk about very special episodes of TV, like when Arnold almost got molested on different strokes i when, when when we got started there was a lot of molestation episodes or when nancy from, reagan showed up on different strokes to tell kids not to do drugs or one. other things that didn't happen on different strokes <laughs> <laughs> basically just special episodes of different strokes keep you pretty busy <laughs> yeah i think i was on both those episodes yeah you were yeah. yes yes and an awful lot of family matters episodes oh yeah family matters christmas was my swan song i finally got my <laughs> christmas wish Cool. Well, thanks so much, Austin. Really good talking to you about X-Men. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. It was a blast. And with that, we'll bring this episode of The Runs to a close. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about me and my work, my website is ohyesverynice.com. That's O-H-Y-E-S-V-E-R-Y-N-I-C-E.com. Also, I'm working on a comics biography of Muhammad Ali. You can learn more about this project at patreon.com slash ohyesverynice, where you can subscribe to both digital and print editions. I can also be contacted at ohyesverynice at gmail.com. You can send me episode suggestions for the runs. And if you send me an email saying you heard about it on this podcast, I will send you a free digital copy of one of the chapters of the Ali comic. Home base for this podcast is theruns.blogspot.com, but it can also be downloaded or streamed on all platforms where podcasts are available. All the best ones. Please rate and review the show and share this podcast on social media and, more importantly, in person. Thanks so much, and see you next time on The Runs. <laughs>